Today, John will be talking on Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have a need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not, will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You may be seated. Thank you, Tony. For those who may be new today, my name is John. I'm one of four elders who currently serves this church body, and I am particularly excited to bring this sermon to us this morning from uh, the words that Tony just read, Hebrews 10 verses 26 through 39. Uh, just a quick word of context in terms of kind of where we're at in Hebrews, where we're going. If you were here last week, Jason preached on the previous passage. And uh, in, in, in that passage, you sort of made a shift in the book of Hebrews. Up until this point in the letter, nine plus chapters or so, uh, the, the focus had been on the object of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. And the author really focused on who he is, what he's done for us, his high priestly ministry, how he and that ministry are better than, than, than various ministers and systems that had come before him. And so we've been hanging out there for a number of chapters on the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. How is he better? And that's been good and rich to do so. But then last week, we sort of made this shift from uh, the object of our faith, Jesus, to our response to him. If, if all that is true, if Jesus is who this author says he is, and if he's done the things that this author says he's done, then what does that mean for us? What does it look like for us to respond to him in faith? And so for this latter part of the book, that's going to be where we hang out. What does it look like to live a life of faith and obedience in response to this Jesus, this high priest who's given up everything for us. And last week, the focus of our text and the focus of Jason's message was this exhortation from verse 24 to stir up one another 
to love and good works. And Jason talked about how this isn't a flippant kind of exhortation. This isn't some try, oh, we should be nice to each other. We should be kind. We should be friendly people. He talked about this is severe encouragement. If you think about the intensity of murder and the feelings of anger and bitterness and rage that would lead a person to actually kill another human being, we're talking about that same kind of intensity only pointed in a very different direction to a very different end, to love and good works and obedience. We're to severely encourage one another in that way. So that was last week. And one way to think about this week's passage is it's a picture. It's an example. It's an expression of what it looks like to do that to severely encourage one another, to stir up one another to love and good works. The goal of our author in this passage, I believe, is to severely encourage his readers in such a way that they hold on to their faith, that they hold on to the confession that they made. Most simply put, that they would hold on to Jesus. And what we'll see from our author here in this passage, and this is a trend that we've seen throughout the letter, he uses a multifaceted approach in trying to accomplish that goal. He wants them all to hold on to their faith, but he knows that his readers are made up of different kinds of people, different personalities, different approaches are warranted. Right? Different motivational pathways were different, and he understood that. He also understood that not all of his readers are necessarily in the same place spiritually. There's a, a little phrase that sort of floats around ministry circles. Maybe some of you have heard of it. As ministers of the gospel were to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And this author understood that he had readers of this letter who were going to be in both camps. Some people needed to be afflicted, challenged, stirred up in sort of an aggressive way. Other people needed a more tender, nurturing, encouraging approach. And I would submit that when it comes to this congregation and the people who are gathered here today, the same is true. We're made up of, of different kinds of people, different personalities, different motivational pathways. And not only that, we come in here this morning in different places spiritually. Some of you come here today hurting. There's, there's pain in your life. There's struggles. There's hardship. You're feeling wounded. And you're here needing to be comforted. There's others here this morning who come in uh, feeling quite comfortable, maybe even a bit complacent. And what you're needing is to be jolted or challenged, perhaps more aggressively, by God's Word. And so the beauty of this text, I think, and really the whole letter, is that there is something here for everyone. If we'll open our ears and our minds and our hearts to hear what God is saying to us. 
So let's pray to that end, and then we'll dig into our text here this morning. Father, we come before you this morning I believe as a church that that wants to be obedient here, this call to hold on, this call to persevere, this call to endure in our faith. We want to obey that command. We want that to be true of our spiritual journey. We don't want to walk away from you. But we confess, Lord, that, that we are weak and we are still a sinful people. We can be disobedient. We can forget. Um, And so, Father, use this time this morning, use this text, use these words uh, in whatever ways you see fit. Where we need to be comforted, Lord, comfort us with these words. Where we need to be challenged, Lord, challenge us with these words. Help us to be open to however you want to speak to us and however you might want to minister us this morning, that in the end, we might indeed take up this call to to hold on, to persevere, to endure in our relationship with you. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. All right, well, let's begin with the first paragraph here in our text, verses 26 through 31. Let me read those words to us once more. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, you don't need to be a biblical scholar to recognize that the author is issuing a warning here in these verses. He is warning his readers about the consequences and the dangers associated with choosing to abandon the faith. And I want to pause for a moment and underline that last comment for those who choose to abandon the faith. Because that's the kind of person he is describing here. He's talking about a person who has deliberately 
consciously and persistently deserted the living God. This type of person the author has in mind, this is someone who's done. They're out. They have walked away from Jesus in the community of faith. He's not talking about a repentant, well-intentioned Christian who happens to be struggling with a particular sin issue, right? That's each and every one of us here today. We're talking about someone who's, who's done. They're out. They're finished. They have walked away. And we know this because of the language the author uses to describe such a person, particularly if you look at verse 29 there. Such a person has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Okay, we're talking about a person who has rejected the person of Jesus Christ. A person who has profaned the blood of the covenant. So we're talking about someone who's rejected the cross and the blood that Jesus shed there for sinners. Rejecting that, dismissing that, setting that aside as something of no relevance or importance to them. Finally, he says that such a person has outraged the spirit of grace. We're talking about someone who has rejected the Holy Spirit. This person has completely rejected God's authority in their life and continues to sin in a flagrant, unrepentant sort of way. So having established that context, there are now, I think, at least two different rabbit holes uh, that we could go down when it comes to this particular part of our text this morning. Number one is the question of whether or not he's talking about a believer who has lost his or her salvation. And we find some language here that might sort of take you or try taking you down that road. Most notably, in, again, in verse 29, the person in question here was in some sense sanctified by the blood he's now profaning. Okay. For some of us, that may raise uh, some questions, perhaps even some concerns. The second rabbit hole concerns the exact nature of punishment that awaits such a person. And again, the author uses some strong language here. He says, such a person will be consumed by a fury of fire. And he concludes this particular section by stating that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And some of you read those words and you say, okay, but what exactly does that mean? How bad will it really be? Are we talking about conscious eternal torment? Are we talking about some form of annihilationism? Are we talking about simply the absence of eternal rewards? These are questions that I recognize some of you have, and some of you have even probably spent time this very week as you studied this passage and met with your MC, thinking about these things, talking about these things, exploring some of these things. 
And here's what I would say in response. For those of you who are particularly eager to go down those rabbit holes, why? Why? Why are those questions of such great interest to you? I'm not saying that they shouldn't be explored, but why? Why the curiosity? I ask because here's the deal. Regardless of spiritual state prior, the one who walks away from God in the way that the author's describing here, that person's walked away from God. And they are left to navigate this very challenging, difficult, painful world without their Heavenly Father. He's not there to forgive them and to comfort them and to guide them, to love them. Right? And, and, and most of us here, we know what that feels like. We tried that. We've tried to sort of have it life on our own terms, doing things our own way, thinking that we don't need God. It doesn't work very well. The scriptures are clear about this. Our life experiences bear witness to this reality. It's not good. And the same could be said for this eternal punishment that the author's describing here. Regardless of what exactly it looks like and feels like, we know this. It's bad. In fact, it's horrible. And again, the scriptures are clear about this. I mean, you know, different commentators, scholars, pastors may have slightly different um, perspectives and conclusions about the exact nature of hell and eternal torment and all that. But, but here's the deal. There isn't anyone who's going to go in and study those passages, regardless of their hermeneutic, and come back and say, you know, I've looked at this kind of with a different lens, and I think hell's going to be great. It's going to be a real hoot, and I think we've got this wrong, and it's something to look forward to, and that's, that's really a place I want to end up. No. There's some, there's some things in there to sort out and different ideas, but it's clear. This is, this is not a place we want to be. So to spend a lot of time and energy nuancing exactly what kind of horrible it will be, I'm personally and pastorally not convinced that is going to be a terribly fruitful exercise for most of us. It's my opinion. And I was talking about this with one of our interns, Kelsey Gould, this week. And um, she shared a little anecdote from her childhood. And she said um, when she was a younger girl, she would sometimes be sort of counting the cost of uh, potential disobedient behavior. And so she would ask her dad, you know, Dad, what will be the consequences if I do this fill-in-the-blank bad thing that I'm not supposed to do? And invariably, he would look up from his paper, and his response would simply be, well, Kesley, let's not find out. Let's not find out. And I think there's some wisdom there. I really do. Has this person lost their salvation? How bad is hell going to be? Well, in the words of Mr. Gould, 
Let's not find out. Let's not find out. Let's not waste a lot of energy trying to figure out the particulars of a life we're trying to avoid. And let's instead fix our eyes on Jesus and the life that he has called us to. I think that will be a far more fruitful approach for us. And I recognize that for some here that that's unsatisfying and maybe even concerning. Um, But my email's in the bulletin. You know where to find me. Um, I really wrestled with this. And I really thought pastorally, or at least tried to. And I really believe that for most of us here, this is the most spiritually fruitful approach to these sorts of questions. So to recap, this first section, 26 through 31, the author is issuing us a warning. He's saying, look, if you choose to walk away from Jesus, to abandon him, to go your own way, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good for you in this life, and it is really not going to be good for you in the life to come. This much is clear. All right, so that's our first section. We have a warning, kind of firm, stern, uh, trying to provoke his readers to faith and obedience. But then, starting in verse 32, he takes a slightly different tone and a slightly different approach. Let's look at that. Verses 32 through 34. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So here in these verses, the author is offering some encouragement by way of a reminder. Offering encouragement by way of a reminder. He's encouraging them to reflect on a previous season of life. And I think it's both interesting and instructive to know what type of season he's inviting them to recall. Circumstantially, it's a very difficult season that he's bringing to their memory. It was, as he says, a time of hard struggles in which they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Their property was plundered, and they were members of this community being mistreated and even imprisoned. Circumstantially, these were very dark, difficult, challenging days that he's inviting them to recall. So how is that encouraging? Well, the encouragement is found in their response to these difficult circumstances. Because in response to all of this that he described, they hung in there. They didn't give up. They persevered. And once more, we're told that they did so with joy and compassion. This difficult season tested and ultimately proved the genuineness of their faith. And so what the author is essentially saying here is, look, you've been here before. 
You faced these types of challenges, and you endured. You hung in there. You didn't give up. And so there's every reason to believe that you'll do so again. And I think this is instructive for us because we sometimes, and I'm included here, we spend a lot of physical and emotional and spiritual energy trying to avoid difficult circumstances. We really like comfort. We really like to be in control. We really like to be happy, right? And that's not all bad. I'm not suggesting that we should go out looking for pain, all right? It'll find us. But my fear is that sometimes we're so focused on trying to make a more comfortable life for ourselves that we miss out on what God is doing in the hard stuff. Uh, Those of you who know me or have been around the church for any period of time know that I I did this thing called Teach for America down in Atlanta, Georgia. A few of you here have done the same. Um, Just a terribly, terribly difficult two years of my life. Uh, If there's such a thing as hell on earth, that was it for me. Um, I felt like a total failure almost every single day of that experience, which in my world is my greatest nightmare. I would fantasize regularly about how to escape those difficult circumstances, uh, wrote my resignation letter on multiple occasions. Uh, It was terrible. It was an absolute grind every step of the way. But, by God's grace, I was able to stay in the game. Not much more than that. No one really learned much, but I stayed in the game. I trusted that God had brought me into that experience for a reason. And in hindsight, that was absolutely the case. At the risk of sounding trite, I've told so many people this, I would not trade that season for anything. Because there's been so many challenges of different types I've faced since then. And that's become a reference point for me, just like here in this letter. I think back to that season and how God sustained me through it. And I think, well, he did it once. Why wouldn't he do it again this time? And he has. And so I share that just because I recognize that there's some of you here who you're in that season. Life sucks. It's hard. And you fantasize about one way or another trying to escape your current life circumstances. And I know that when you're in the thick of it, it's difficult to be encouraged by these words. But know that if you'll just hang in there, if you'll just hang in there, and maybe that's all you can do right now, if you'll just hang in there, then there is a great reward that awaits you. And that's what I want to talk about next, that reward. Look at verses 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. These two verses here are significant not just with respect to our passage today, but really the entire book of Hebrews. This reward that the author speaks about, it is the ultimate why behind the author's call 
to endure. If this reward is real and truly awaits those who stay in the game, then it makes all the sacrifice worth it. But if it doesn't exist, if it's not real, if we can't look forward to this reward, then they and we are fools for enduring the hardship that inevitably comes with following Jesus. So what is this reward that the author speaks about in our text today? And honestly, this is one of those moments as a preacher where you really feel like words come up short because this, this reward that he speaks about, it's so beautiful and so rich and so multifaceted that it's hard to capture with just a few words in a few minutes, but I'll try. Fundamentally, this reward is about life with God. It is the blessing of full salvation that awaits those who patiently look to Christ. This reward includes a share in God's eternal rest and a place in his heavenly city. This reward is the final goal of God's covenant people and the ultimate end for which all of us were created. Every single time you experience something good in this life, a delicious meal with friends, a tender embrace with your child, a quiet moment of reflection in nature, these are all but tiny foretastes of the life that is to come for those who trust in Jesus. The book of Revelation teaches us that those who hang in there can look forward to a day when death and pain and sin will be no more. A day in which every tear will be wiped away and every wrong will be made right. Indeed, if we'll just hold on, then we know that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from our reward, the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, our faith is worth fighting for because Jesus truly is the only thing worth living for. And I'd like to close the sermon by giving you what I think is a beautiful picture from our own congregation of what it looks like to hold on for that reward. There's a young woman at our church named Maddie Jackson. Has been here for a number of years now. Some of you know her, some of you may not. Um, it's been a tough several years for Maddie. Uh, has dealt with uh, some fairly intense struggles when it comes to her faith. 
questioning whether God is real, questioning whether God is for her, questioning whether she's a part of his family. Um, intense struggles, wrestlings, doubting. Um, as an elder team and a staff team, we've been praying for her the last several years. She's been cared for and discipled by various members of this body, uh, reached out to a, uh, one of our, our counselors um, who works at the church um, in service of some folks here and some folks otherwise, and, and, and she's wrestled and struggled and sort of just grinded through this difficult uh, season. And um, several years back, when all this was sort of getting started, she wrote a letter to herself. Um, as she was beginning to face these struggles and, and anticipating that this may not be a short season, she wrote a letter to herself to encourage herself and to exhort herself and how she would want her future self to continue to sort of fight this good fight of faith. And with her permission, I would, um, I'm going to read that letter that she wrote to herself back in December of 2015. She writes this, Dear future Maddie, your life really sucks right now. It really sucks. You feel so lost and empty, worthless and broken. It's been seven months now, seven months of doubt, seven months of feeling an ingenuine faith. Maddie, you are so tired, and you want nothing more than to have this all be over. You've had many tear-filled days and nights, and there are times you would rather be dead because you feel so low. You're terrified that your doubts may actually be true, that you aren't actually a Christian but one in disguise. While others around you are filled with joy, you feel your heart being torn in 90 different directions. When you think about your doubts for too long, your life starts to lose purpose. And eventually you find yourself in tears again. You feel like you're nearing rock bottom, but you don't know how to ask for help. You're scared to be a burden to those around you, and you are too prideful to show them how weak you are. So you are stuck in this constant downward spiral, unable to find your footing. You cry out to God, but he doesn't seem to hear you. Is this because I'm not saved, you wonder? You feel this weight in your heart growing. You feel yourself sinking deeper and deeper. And you wonder how much longer it is until you finally shatter. Your heart, head, and soul are almost constantly in turmoil. But you wake up each morning, get out of bed, and fight your way through each day. You smile and laugh with those around you, even though you feel like you are dying inside. You pray fervently when your heart is cracking within you. You want healing but you have yet to see God's workings in you. This frustrates you a lot because you want to grow so badly, become wise and pour into others, yet nothing happens. It's really hard, especially when you are trying to face this on your own. You told a handful of people, but you would much rather cry in your room alone than let them see you this way. Maddie, why do you do this to yourself? What goes on in your head that makes you think you should hide your brokenness? Jesus died for that. He covered that. Do you know that, Maddie? Jesus died for you. Broken, shameful, untrusting, 
unbelieving, lost you. Why can't you understand that? Oh my gosh, you are a frustrating person. Open your eyes and continue to pray with all your might that God would rip down the barriers in your heart. You can't do this on your own. For the Lord is the giver of all good things, including faith. You can't force that upon yourself because you are broken and sinful. But in Christ, you can have life. I wonder what this confidence is like. The confidence that you know and believe with your whole heart that you are indeed a child of God. One that is seen through the eyes of love, never to be shaken. Believe me, it's a tough ride. Harder than anything you've ever gone through. But don't give up. I hope with my entire being that the Lord has rescued you from this awful season by the time you read this. But if not, keep fighting. Maddie, we know that you will feel discouraged if that's the case. However, I know you won't give up because you know, even if you don't feel like you do right now, that Jesus is the most valuable thing ever. You will not let that out of your sights for our sake. Dare to fight and fall and stand up once again, Maddie. Don't quit on us. Don't lose hope. It's so hard right now and it feels like God is ignoring us. Please, Continue searching for Jesus. You feel terrible, but there is light in the distance. There has to be. And with tear-filled eyes, I tell you, please hope in your salvation. We are nothing without it. It was 2015. Uh, Maddie's here today. She continues to walk with Jesus and fight this good fight of faith today. In a few weeks, Lord willing, she'll be baptized up here on Easter Sunday. And I couldn't be prouder to call her a sister in Christ and a member of this church body. The author ends this section by saying this, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Maddie, she gets it, and she's been living it. And I would invite you to join me in prayer, asking God to give us the strength and the faith and the courage to do likewise. Father, we want to hold on. We want to hang in there. We want to endure to the end. We want to avoid this punishment you speak about, and we want to enjoy these rewards that you promise. But we need your help. We desperately need your grace and your spirit we need you to walk with us every step of the way and we need you to empower us to help each other walk that walk and fight that fight as well. Father, I, I so hope that that verse 39 here will be uh, the story and the anthem of this church body. That though we may face struggles and challenges, 
that we may be called to sacrifice in ways we can't even imagine. I pray that we are not of those who, are, who shrink back and are destroyed, but instead are those who have faith and persevere. Father, by your grace, through your spirit, help us. Help us to join with Maddie and others uh, in fighting that good fight of faith, knowing that in the end, it will all be worth it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.